You're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast. My name is John Jacob and this is episode number 123. What's it like setting up a festival? What's involved in putting together a programme of concerts covering nine days? And whilst you're thinking about that, what's it like doing that now in spring 2021? Camilla King, Head of Programming at Cheltenham Festivals, can give you an insight. But what is a worry at the moment is just that we're in May... Um, we announce the programme next week. We go on sale shortly after that. and But we still don't have um, kind of guidance and criteria for what the summer will be. Mm. So we're having to plan for every possible kind of outcome or sort of wait and see what happens to work out which version we're going to need to do which I think is a huge problem for audiences because you'll book tickets to things in the summer and you'll be asked to do different things by different venues and different promoters. Mm-hmm. And some people are having inter- intervals. We've, we've decided to cut all the intervals. Um, some organisations will be saying masks. Some might say it's at your own discretion if we scrap all the... So, you know, and that's a confusing message for, for audiences. So, yeah, yes, yeah, I get yeah, that. Yeah, and I, and I really feel for audiences because I think if I was booking tickets for something now for the summer, I people are used to it. We're used to that now. We know that this is just the situation at the moment and I think audiences are largely really understanding of that. But I feel for people booking for things because it probably will be a different set of regulations and expectations every time you go to something. You keep hoping someone might have um, you know, a bat phone. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. You do you have <laughs> a bat phone? phone through to the highest possible authority. <laughs> yes, um, but I don't. Doesn't I don't think anybody does actually. Everybody I know in the industry is in the same position, and I I sort of thought, well, you know, we're working we're working a lot with the BBC and with Radio Three and BBC National Orchestra of Wales, um, and you kind of think, well, the BBC, you know, this yeah. huge corporation, they must. If anybody knows, they must know. But they, we're all in the same position of just just waiting and hoping that information will be released or that we'll get some kind of guide. But actually, no, I, I, as far as I'm aware, I don't think anybody knows any more than is already out there. This is an unusual time, an unprecedented time. We've all said that often enough for it to be overlooked now. We focus on the musicians a lot in this podcast too, and the music and about listening and that's right and proper but what about the people who are mounting the festivals what have they had to think about how have they had to adapt how are they responding the Cheltenham Festival runs from the 2nd to the 11th of July 2021 artists appearing include cellist Matthew Barley Dame Sarah Connolly Jess Gillam Kill Carabits pianist Stephen Osborne plus the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, Bournemouth Symphony Orchestra, and a whole host of premieres from composers including Luke Stiles, Ayana Witter-Johnson, and previous podcastees, Sarah Nichols and Maya Booger. In this podcast, Camilla and I talk about an arts administrator's response to restrictions, furlough, the sense of loss she experienced when her work was lost to the pandemic, Uh, logistics, and especially about planning for different scenarios. The industry is fragile and it depends on people like Camilla as much as the musicians themselves to get it back on its feet and it's not an easy job. Because of this year being what it is 
the um, the kind of timeline for the preparation for the festival has been squashed. So things that we would have done like kind of, you know, like final fee agreements and the majority of program content and that kind of thing and writing all the copy and deciding what photos are going to be used, like all of that detail, we normally do by mid-February. So then from mid-February until about April, there is a slight kind of breathing space, but all of that process has been shifted and has happened pretty much since Easter or sort of between the end of March and now. And so now we've kind of come straight off the back of doing all the box office preparation, ticket price agreement, seat decisions, all of that stuff that goes on behind the scenes. Um, that's all happened over the last kind of six weeks. And now we're going straight into the final kind of six to eight weeks before the festival of doing everything else. So it's it's compressed kind of seven months of work. Has, has the extended period... <coughs> Has the extended period of um, thinking in a different way or perhaps thinking more reflectively or having sort of that, that time to explore thinking, has that helped in preparation for this sort of madness? Not... I mean, maybe in a way, I think... I mean, I would say yes, if, if there had been more space creative space but honestly for me and I know that hasn't been the case for everybody but certainly for me I found the cancelling of the festival last summer really hard emotionally really difficult um and I was quite it was quite low I was quite depressed last sort of spring summer just dealing with the fallout of having done all that preparation work and then having lost everything um and you know even down to things like um, you know, we we met in London when you interviewed Jules Buckley, yeah. and you did a podcast episode, and, yeah. and and I recorded something which could never be used, and it's kind of all of that sort of emotion and thought is suddenly nothing, um, and and I I really struggled with that, and I didn't feel over last summer like I could really, I didn't feel creative. I mean, I just had no energy, and when I was furloughed, I because um, I was furloughed for a few months. I was sort of doing bits and pieces, but mostly furloughed. Um, I I just went in my garden and gardened for about eight hours a day, just kind of <laughs> slightly manically put all my energy into that. And, you know, I think in a way it probably was good for me to have a summer off of doing a festival um, because it is a kind of quite a hamster wheel activity doing festivals, that yearly cycle. Um, but the autumn when I would have loved to have been kind of being creative and, and coming up with new, new ideas and things, felt very much a kind of period of stasis because we just didn't know what was going to happen. And all through the autumn up to Christmas, it was that it was a kind of, oh, we can't plan because we there's no sort of sense of what this summer was going to be. And even in January, when we were sort of coming back and, and back at work full time and kind of thinking, right, OK, well, we've got to start planning now even then that was really difficult to do because and even now it's difficult yes. to do um because we still don't quite know what this what july is going to look like um so and i have found that difficult because well just because for me i i think i'm quite a a visual person so when i'm planning the festival in my head the whole time i'm thinking about 
what it will look like and feel like and the the shape of it over the 10 days or however long it is in my mind I have a kind of a visual of what that will be so to have a kind of a, a future out there or a festival out there that's just sort of foggy if you like it's really hard to kind of take that and mold that into something and that that lack of clarity is is really um is really hard to work with I don't really care about politicians, for example, really. I, don't, I mean, I, I do get quite worked up about some politicians and less so about others. But I wonder whether when one has gone through this process and you're a planner and you're employed to plan and you, and you are motivated to be creative, whether there is an element of trust placed in, in people in authority such that when you come to January, you think, well, I'm investing in this, I'm motivated. But actually, I'm not entirely sure whether we going to deliver it because I'm not sure whether I trust this will come out the right way and I'm not trying to personalise it or politicise it but I just wonder whether there's a trust thing there. Uh, yeah absolutely and I think I'm definitely one of those people who who really can only work to a deadline <laughs> and and sometimes I can produce something on a deadline and so I really I really need that motivation and so that whole sense that you know at the start of this year we didn't know whether the summer was going to happen or not or what it would be makes that all feel so fuzzy that it's really hard to get motivated for it i bet Um, you were really popular at school weren't you i bet you were the cool kid at school if you could you could (laughs) deliver on a deliver on a deadline i mean you just like slip that in so effortlessly (laughs) yeah yeah i don't worry about deadlines it's just like yeah here you go I bet you were yeah. really popular. No, I was the classical music geek. I don't <laughs> very popular people. <laughs> yeah, we all suffered, didn't we? Yeah, we did. We did. Yeah. It uh, takes a while to find a crowd when you're into classical music. So I've already thought of something else that I need to ask you about. But firstly, just give us a rundown of what is in the festival. I had the building blocks of the festival already in place because, of course, I plan a lot of things more than a year in advance. So I knew that who our main orchestras were going to be and I had some of the chamber music already planned. And then of course, some things carried from 2020 were put into 2021. So the overall shape of the programme and what was going to be in it came together quite, that was in place. But it was what I was really concerned about in January was that this didn't just feel like a concert series and just 10 days of two concerts a day with none of the extra stuff that is really important in a festival to make it feel like a kind of interesting and varied and really fun celebratory experience because that's what and 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 when I you know when I'm planning the festival I'm I'm trying to think all the time about the flow through the through each day across the 10 days and how that will feel to the audience and how it looks in the brochure and that kind of that sense of movement I guess through the through the festival I think that's really key to creating a good overall experience. Um, and so initially I I was sort of feeling worried that that those things wouldn't be possible or I wasn't sure how I could fit them in. Um, so what's been nice over the last few months is to kind of look and think, okay, well, what things are feasible if we have to socially distance? What things can I still make happen? So we've got we've got orchestras, we've got um, the Bournemouth Symphony Orchestra coming. We've got BBC National Orchestra of Wales, uh, both of whom are doing gorgeous, specially put together programmes for us. Um, with smaller orchestra, orchestral forces, obviously, but still really, really lovely. Um, and 
we've still got our mixtape, which we do every year, which was Myra Bowen's um, kind of concept and that we've kept and developed and um, and that's a really special experience. We've kept that in the mix. We, um, I had really wanted this year to be a big Malcolm Arnold celebration. I love Malcolm Arnold um, and it's obviously his anniversary this year. I met him, I sort of have a personal connection with him because my piano teacher when I was growing up was in Norfolk, was great friends with him and he'd actually written pieces for her. And so when I was about 13 or 14, I think, she had one of those pupils concerts that teachers sometimes do. And, uh, and Malcolm Arnold actually came along. I mean, I <laughs> wow. Was, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but the room yeah. was silent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he was, yeah, I mean, no pressure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, it's you. Hi, come in. <laughs> um, he was, he was very um, unwell by that point and, you know, not walking well and had a care with and things. But he came, which was just, you know, I mean, such a special experience to play for someone like that. Um, and so that felt really special. I got to meet him afterwards and give him some flowers, of course. Um, wow. And- wow. What a lovely thing. Yeah. Um, How so was I- he? Tell, tell, what was he like? I mean, I know he was ill, I know, but, but yeah. what, what was it like to meet him? I mean, you obviously knew who he was by that stage. Yeah, I did. And I, because actually, I mean, I think in Norfolk, he was sort of, there was that, I mean, I guess because my piano teacher was great friends with him. Um, and so I'd heard a lot about him from her. Um, but also in the wind bands that I played yeah. in, up, we played, you know, the um, sea, sea shanty, you know, the and folk melody things that he did variations um and so i you know i knew his music from that um i played the piccolo part in it in a county wind band i mean we're not talking anything particularly high level but i but i knew who he was and i played his music and so it was a big deal to meet him um but he was very old i mean i don't remember him saying anything very much um it was much more a sort of shaking his hand and saying you know lovely lovely to meet you um but i heard my teacher told me afterwards he thought my playing was wonderful (laughs) well of course (laughs) i made it okay so actually what you told me so far in 15 minutes of this podcast is that you're really good working to a deadline and malcolm arnold (laughs) thought you played really well wow (laughs) do you work alone camilla So yeah, um, anyway, I wanted to, there was there's that kind of personal connection for me with Malcolm Arnold. So I wanted to have lots of his music, but um, that became just with the late planning, it was just too, you know, we couldn't get it all in. But we are going to have a couple of film screenings, Malcolm Arnold film scores, um, which I'm really pleased we've been able to make happen um, because at least it's some small nod to his anniversary. Does that have an impact on... So I've spoken to other people about, uh, um, you know, artistic planners love, obviously love anniversaries. Um, <laughs> uh, does that mean that you're having to do the difficult thing and go, OK, well, we'll do, our, we'll do our homage to... We'll do our celebration of a particular person next year instead. Or does that mean the anniversary is past? We're not going back to it. No, that's it. No more. We're never going to talk about Beethoven. Yes, <laughs> yes. Done brilliant, now. brilliant. <laughs> Wow, there was a dividend. 
There was a dividend to COVID. We didn't have to talk about Beethoven quite so much. <laughs> um, I'm really sad that we lost all our Beethoven. Oh, oh, I see. Okay, sorry. Okay. I was no, no, no. That's I was really looking forward to them. But um, we have got Matthew Barley coming back, um, and he's got a really gorgeous program that he was supposed to do last summer called Ludwig, and it's um, a kind of so. There's obviously Beethoven cello sonatas, but he's doing his own improvisation, which, if you've ever seen him do it, is completely extraordinary I mean he's got the most incredible kind of charisma yes he has yes completely enchanting um but and I think he might also do some kind of talking about Beethoven and his life and things so I I'm really looking forward to seeing that um but that is the only Beethoven that made the cut <laughs> right, okay. right. <laughs> thanks ever so much not that you're having to sell your festival to me obviously there's a there's a much wider network of people actually within the overall concept context of the program it's a pretty kind of you know hopefully popular and accessible program because we want people to want to come but the festival was founded in 1945 for composers in the in the post-war era and to give them a platform and so that that uh um spirit of, of wanting to support composition and composers and create new music is still really important. So we've got some great world premieres. We've got a new chamber opera from Luke Stiles called Awakening Shadow, which is being um, co-commissioned with the Prestine Festival. Mm-hmm. Um, and what Luke has done is he's taken the Britain Canticles. They are performed within the work in their entirety but Luke has written, or actually is writing. I, <laughs> I think right. he's still writing. It. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, because I don't know exactly how long it is yet. Um, that's but... a lo- that's a lovely window, lovely window <laughs> in for an arts and ministers. I was like, no, hang on, I don't have I have I put that in the folder? I can't remember. <laughs> so yeah, I think he's still writing it. Um, but he's writing new scenes, um, which will kind of interweave through Bitten's Canticles to turn the themes in that into a sort of cohesive opera, chamber opera. So I, and I think Luke's a wonderful composer and obviously Britain's Canticles are extraordinary. So I think that's going to be something really unusual, but really special. Mm-hmm. Um, we've also got an incredible composer who I'm a great fan of, um, Ayanna Witter-Johnson, who's written for the festival and performed with us a few times now. Um, she's writing a new work for Jess Gillum. So that's going to be lovely. I've seen a draft of that and it looks great. <laughs> You're not reporting into me. This is not, it's not, it's not like a one-to-one with the board. <laughs> no, I've seen the draft. It's okay. We're going to meet the deadline. Don't worry, everybody. <laughs> I'm, just re- I'm just reassuring myself. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm working through my to-do list. Yeah, very good. <laughs> Talking. Um what else we've got and we've got other um well premieres so we've got uh two works i think definitely one for choir um by a great composer young composer called lily harris who's the royal philharmonic society composer um in 2020 but we've kept her commission and we're going to do that this summer uh we've got another rps commission from um someone called jonathan Wolgar. He's writing a new work for the Twelve Ensemble. Wow. The Twelve Ensemble um, are closing the festival on Friday the 9th of July with a special programme in Gloucester Cathedral. And I'm so 
please, because I've been a huge fan of theirs for years and I've wanted to have them at the festival for a really long time. So the fact that they were free this summer and could do our closing slot was just serendipity. It was luck um, that uh, I contacted them and said, are you free? Could you yeah. Yes, I am. <laughs> yes, we can do that. <laughs> uh, my memory of last year's uh, Cheltenham Festival was, um, not that it went ahead, but certainly in the pre-publicity stuff, was that there were going to be lots of tents, there was lots of outdoor areas. I remember there being lots of flags for some reason. I don't know why I remember flags. Um, but I imagine that because of the uh, logistics imposed upon you by COVID, that actually there's a lot more outdoor activity. Well, we are having... So I think what you're thinking of is our free stage. Yes. Our stage which we did for the first time in 2019. It was just a single stage, but there were food stalls and drinks and lots of beautiful flags. Um, as I you... hadn't imagined the flags then. No, okay, great, great. <laughs> I, think I, I think I did say when we were planning it, I said, can we have, can we have flags and can, <laughs> the, can we have the lights? Can we have lots of fairy lights, lots of... Bistro right. lights and and lots of flags. That's that's what I <laughs> yes. vision for it. Lots of colourful fairy lights. Um, so yeah, we so we were due to have that last summer, and we are having it this summer. Um, but instead of opening the festival, we're going to put it on the final weekend, and the reason for that is because, as a one-off, we are joining forces with the Cheltenham Jazz Festival. Who is part? They're part of our overall organisation, so they're kind of like a sister festival. And because they couldn't do live concerts in May when they should have done earlier in May, they did an online kind of weekend. But then they're coming in at the end of the music festival and having three days of jazz gigs in Cheltenham Town Hall, and they will sort of segue kind of straight on from the music festival into some jazz. And then on that closing weekend. Um, while the jazz is happening we will have our outdoor stage again and I've overseen the programming of that and it's going to be a real mix there will be jazz of course there's going to be some classical we've got indie folk Americana world all sorts of things you name it it's on there and it's gonna be really great and lots of food and drink traders and you know, hopefully it'll be a bit of a party. But you have this ability to talk about this in a way that makes me think, oh, oh I'm really excited by that because it's <laughs> because it's like normal life. Um, yes. The thing Wouldn't that, that comes the thing that comes to mind, having been to the Bath Festival yesterday uh, and having stepped into a restaurant for the first time in in three months, is that uh, in some respects restaurants have it slightly easier because they have a fixed venue. They have, you know, a restaurant is a controlled environment and so they have logistics for one fixed venue. But something like a festival is dealing with multiple venues and you're having to bring in just organisational, uh, an organisational framework and have that managed by people who are volunteers, presumably, uh, um, and who may not necessarily grapple with uh, change or adaptation, certainly not at the last minute uh, particularly well. Uh, I'm making a sweeping generalisation there. But but it, I think what, what surprised me, or what I was reminded by yesterday, was just putting on an event now is... 
uh, hugely demanding. It, it brings an impact to the audience, but it must be massively demanding on people like you. Mm. It's it's definitely a, it's a huge worry. I mean, it really is. Do you mean in terms of safety or just the logistics? The logistics. I'm not actually worried um, about the safety in so far as one of the benefits of, of Cheltenham festivals is that because we and not not many people realise this, I think, um, is that we've got four festivals within one umbrella organisation. So last October, we had the Literature Festival, Chatham Literature Festival, and that happened as a complete festival online, but also in venues, socially distanced. So even then, I think we were one of the first festivals to go ahead last autumn in that format. Um, so we've done, as an organisation, the teams who manage those kind of logistics around venues and safety and that kind of thing, have been through that process once already, and they're about to go through it again in June with our science festival. So I feel that in terms of those logistics and making sure that audiences are safe and performers are safe, um, we are in a really good position to know what to do and to be able to handle that and have experienced it already. So I feel really confident about the teams and my colleagues and that they know what they're doing, which is a huge weight off my mind to kind of think, okay, well, they can <clears throat> sort of take those details and deal with them. But what is a worry at the moment is just that we're in May. Um, we announce the programme next week. We go on sale shortly after that. and But we still don't have firm kind of guidance and criteria for what the summer will be. Mm. So we're having to plan for every possible kind of outcome or sort of wait and see what happens to work out which version we're going to need to do. I mean, at the moment, we're looking at two scenarios, either fully socially distanced or more or less back to normal. But I should stress also still doing things like cleaning the venues and ventilating them between performances, uh, making sure that performers are safe, you know, so still having some aspects. But I think if if we are fully open again come June, that's the stance we would like to take. Mm. But there's really no halfway house um, because actually, and I, again, I know, I mean, this is part of the problem with not having firm guidance. Everybody's interpreting it slightly differently, which I think is a huge problem for audiences because you'll book tickets to things in the summer and you'll be asked to do different things by different venues and different promoters. Mm -hmm. and some people are having inter intervals. We've, we've decided to cut all the intervals. Um, some organisations will be saying masks. Some might say it's at your own discretion if we scrap all the... So, you know, and so that's a confusing message for, for audiences. So, yeah, yes, yeah, I get yeah, that. Yeah, and I... And I really feel for audiences because I think if I was booking tickets for something now for the summer, I, you know, <clears throat> people are used to it. We're used to that now. We know that this is just the situation at the moment. And I think audiences are largely really understanding of that. But I feel for people booking for things because it probably will be a different set of regulations and expectations every time you go to something. 
I know that I have something coming down the pipe in terms of work, which, frankly, if the 21st of June is extended, then that thing is not going to happen. And so I'm sort of clinging on, would you believe, to announces from Nicola Sturgeon, because <laughs> I, I have built into my head that announcers from Nicola Sturgeon basically preview what Boris Johnson is going to say. So, <laughs> yeah. so, so that's kind of my perspective, but I wonder whether I'm... I'm different. Maybe you have a more formal channel. No, I don't. I think actually that's part of the problem. I, you keep hoping someone might have, um, you know, a bat phone. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. You do you have <laughs> a bat phone? phone through to the highest possible authority. <laughs> yes. Um, but I don't, doesn't. I don't think anybody does actually. Everybody I know in the industry is in the same position, and I, I sort of thought, well, you know, we're working. We're working a lot with the BBC and with Radio 3 and BBC National Christopher of Wales. Um, and you kind of think, well, the BBC, you know, this yeah. huge corporation, they must, if anybody knows, they must know. But they, we're all in the same position of just just waiting and hoping that information will be released or that we'll get some kind of guide. But actually, no, I, I, as far as I'm aware, I don't think anybody knows any more than is already out there in the public arena. Um, and I've got a friend who's a travel journalist and I've been asking her if she's got any more information. Um, I've, I mean, I'm trying sort of people who I know in all walks of life who might conceivably know something and nobody does. Um, and I've been sort of doing that awful scrolling Twitter. Yes. Yeah. See if anyone says anything or gives any hints, but you'll, you'll see the same. I, I mean, I think everybody's as, as, sort of on tenterhooks as everybody else right now. Uh, I think there's it would be far too easy, from a journalistic point of view, I think, to be fair and balanced, it would be far too easy to assume that this is all deliberate or incompetence. Uh, I wonder whether it's by accident that there is no information or if it's just that, well, we don't know either. We're all, we're all know, in the dark. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? It would be very easy know, to I... go, no, they're inept. But actually, I wonder whether maybe there's a different view yeah, and from what I've read, and I have been, you know, sort of looking at articles in the press, it, it feels very much that there's a sort of, or at least what I'm getting from the news is that there's a split. And it feels almost like a 50-50 split. There are scientists and academics saying, don't worry, the vaccine is going to protect everybody enough. We don't need to worry about this new variant. We will still be able to go ahead with opening things up in June. But then there are also scientists and academics and sage scientists coming out and saying, no, this could be really, really bad. We shouldn't have opened up this week. We should have delayed it. The, the impact in a month's time could be catastrophic. And it's there's sort of it feels to me, and that also might be my interpretation of it, that there's sort of two ends of the scale. And there are people who are saying, no, no, very confident. It's all good. And other people who are going, mm, it might be, but it also might not be. We don't know. And I and I feel for the well, I do feel for the government because because they know as much or as little as we yes. do. Yes, uh, and they're in a, in a position where they're having to make. Um, I mean, I never thought I would have, I would ever do this <laughs> recording a podcast, <laughs> but they're in a position where they're having to make a decision based. Um, they're having to make a decision in the dark to a certain extent. Yeah. I mean, they've got the, they've got the data. I get that they've got the data, but if the if the interpretation of that data is at two extremes, then actually you've got to be a really strong leader with a really strong vision and really good at communicating uh, to be able to uh, commit and not create a problem. 
Of course. And if if the government had turned around on Saturday and said, last Saturday, and said, actually, we're going to have to not open things back up on Monday, the outcry from businesses yeah. who invested to be ready would, would be huge. And I and I get that. And I and I think it's I mean, it's just an impossible situation, isn't it? Really? You you've got that huge pressure of, of the economy and people's livelihoods and businesses. And then the, on the other hand, you know, people's lives are at stake and it's, but, but in both scenarios, people's lives are at stake. Um, and what, what do you do? I mean, I, it's hard, but I equally, I do think, you know, I was checking the DCMS website last week and there have not been any updates on that since early April. And you just think, well, Come on. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) Do you need a web guy? (laughs) (laughs) Even if even if it was just some some kind of this is where we are with things. We've we've tested XYZ in venues, the data will be released on X date. I think at this point any kind of information would set people's minds at rest, but total silence feels really scary and yet in other areas of the media uh i'm desperate to leap in you know where you think about the attention that was thrown on the brits uh and rightly so you know it was a great it was a great test event i I totally get it. it was a great opportunity to do a test event even if it did look a little bit strange that everybody was up in the essentially up in the gods and you know all the action was going on distanced on the bottom but there was there was a lot of communication done there's a lot in the press so there's a lot of messaging in the press but there's not what you're saying is there's not actually an official stream of information yeah yeah absolutely and i i mean it's just really tricky isn't it but yes you see things you see those things happening and you're thinking well how how have they done that? Because we've not got any of these guidelines. Yes, yes, indeed. Where's I just wish there was better communication. What are you most hopeful about? You know, what are you settling on amongst all of that? What are you? What do you find yourself settling on that helps you sleep? <laughs> I mean, I would say that I'm naturally a bit of a pessimist. Right. So I think I'm forcing myself to be optimistic. So I I still feel hopeful that come the end of June, things can open back up again. And we won't be back to normal. I don't anticipate that. And I don't think personally that people will be ready to just snap their fingers, flick a switch, and life goes back to normal. No. Because like this for so long, you, it's going to take time to kind of readapt. Um, so I'm not anticipating that, but I, I mean, I hope certainly for the festival and for other events this summer that we will be back to near normal um, come the end of June. That's certainly what I'm hoping. But of course, with this new variant, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. Um, <coughs> the thing that surprised me yesterday when I went to Bath was that I was, um, I mean, I heard the opening, the opening subject in, um, you know, the opening line in Der Freischutz Overture. And I sobbed. I mean, it was just like, oh my, oh my God! I'm in a, I'm in a, a room with hundreds of other people. We're all sat here in silence. This is just gorgeous. Uh, and once I'd got over there, I, I reflected on how oddly discombobulating the day had been. All I had done was get on a tube train, 
go to Paddington, get on another train and go to Bath. That's all I'd done. Um, <clears throat> Were you tired? I was. Yeah, no, I was. Absolutely. Aside from the, the incident that happened at Bath Station at the end, which prompted a whole string of other things, which we really don't need to go into now. But um, <laughs> uh, the, the fact is that it... It all felt, it seems ridiculous to say, it all felt quite stressful. Yeah. Something as straightforward as, as something I have done endlessly uh, before the pandemic felt stre- uh, felt stressful. And I'm reminded that, you know, as you say, when when things are removed, when distancing is removed, a whole bank of people will come out of this and find that the everyday is suddenly feels like a massive hill to climb does that mm. is that reflected in your thinking about ticket sales definitely yeah I mean it's so interesting because the everyman theatre in Cheltenham which is a gorgeous big theatre um, that has all sorts of you know musical theatre and things touring shows come there um they are planning to open up fully at the end of June and they're already selling tickets and I had a look the other night they've got Priscilla Queen of the Desert coming and it looks to me like that's already not far off being sold out at normal capacity. And I I was quite surprised because I thought, gosh, are people really happy to just, you know, take that risk that things will be okay, but also that they feel comfortable about going back mm-hmm. into a space, you know, all those things. I was surprised. And I certainly, in all my forecasting, am not anticipating to sell things out this summer because... And but and that maybe that is I mean that's partly being realistic because <laughs> you don't want to over forecast um, on your box office income, but it's partly based on how I'm feeling about things. Um, I'm not sure I want to go into a full capacity venue in the middle of July. No, no, absolutely. Older. Yeah, as a, <laughs> as an as an administrator <laughs> stepping into a venue and going, oh, we sold we sold to capacity. Oh no. <laughs> We're a super spreader event. Oh, no. It's going to be... I'm fascinated to see what the reaction is when that first note of the first concert is played. I think audiences are going to be sort of, you know, breathtaking, yes. really, because it's such a long time since we've all shared an event like that together. I know some people, you know, will have been to the odd thing and there have been the odd concerts happening during those breaks between lockdowns, but this will be the first time that there's a sort of 10 days of music happening um, in Cheltenham Town Hall and our other venues in well over a year. And I I think that the impact of that is going to be wonderful and huge. And I think think for performers as well, um, let's not forget that it's a really big deal to get back up on stage in front of an audience after more than a year in a lot of cases. And I know that performers are feeling the pressure of that and are looking forward to it and are excited. But I've had conversations with artists and with managers where they're, you know, they're nervous about it because it's a muscle that hasn't been yeah. for a while. So I'm very, I'm very conscious of that. And yeah, the irony is, is that actually, you know, they could play anything, you know, yes. they could play on a broken string. We'd still applaud warmly. I mean, frankly. Absolutely. That's it, isn't it? I think, yeah, it, there's always that, um, that thing with performers and audiences and, and um, audiences are always on the performer's side 
and it's easy when you're a performer I think to psych yourself out about that but never never in you know however long how I mean maybe since the last world war have audiences been so dying for live performance and so much just wanting to listen to someone play and you're right they could they could come and play almost anything and they'd get whoops and cheers I'm sure so I think I think that's going to be wonderful and exhilarating and I can't, I can't wait um whatever whatever we end up with whether we're socially distanced or not and how many people buy tickets I think just for the people who do come it's going to be an amazing experience I can't wait when the festival is over have you got a break no have you I- haven't have you I can tell <laughs> <laughs> I, can't, I used to be really organized in my personal life but since starting working for the festivals there's so much planning there's so many decisions that have to be made and things that I have to think about that I've become I've become awful in my personal life at planning anything. I, I sort of want other people to make decisions for me because I can't, I just can't outside of work. I just can't make decisions anymore. It seems that we are ending on a bit of a low point, Camilla. <laughs> <laughs> I will have a break. I will have a break in the summer. Um, I will probably go back to Norfolk and see my mum and go to the beach. And I can't wait to walk by the sea. 